All right. Hey, kia ora and welcome everybody to yet another episode of Big Life Mindset. Um, I am stoked. I am so blown away to be able to bring this person onto the show because I wanted to chat with Shelly uh, about a lot of her challenges. So it is a real pleasure and privilege for me to be able to introduce Shelly Davies. Kirana, Shelly, how are you? Kirana, Eddie, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited. My only real concern is that we could probably talk all day and I don't know if people want to listen to that. No, they will. Trust me, I can tell they will. I can tell they will. So Shelley is the founder of the School of Unprofessional Writing. Um, not only that, though, but uh, so Shelley and I have actually had a little bit of a conversation before this. We caught up uh, maybe a week or two before I went to Rarotonga. Yeah. And it was during that conversation that I realized how much life experience you've been able to pack in. Uh, and so I'm you know, looking forward to let's just cover a whole bunch of bases and, and you know, go wherever this thing takes us. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show, Shelley, as you know, is because as part of the Living Your Passion series, um, I'm really keen on exploring and understanding more about um, some of the challenges that women, that female guests have had to overcome or they encounter, or they're still battling their way through in order to, to chase those dreams. Um, secondary to that, but almost as important, is really understanding what can husbands, partners, brothers, sons, nephews, what can we do to help support or empower or enable somebody who might be looking at chasing those dreams? Because there's a lot of us out there who are deeply engaged, we just don't know what good support looks like. Yeah. And and I, you know, going back 10 years, I wouldn't have known what good support looks like either. I, I know now by this beautiful current kind of serendipitous accidental accidental situation that I find myself in. And on reflection, I'm like, wow, that was really good support. So I'm very excited to talk about this. I'm also really aware that I need to not turn it into the like, let's praise the Michael Matchett world, because that's my partner, Mike Matchett. He's from Tefano Apanui. He's a carver and some people might know who he is. And so it would be really easy for me to just talk for an hour and just praise him. And that might get a little boring. So we'll oh, try and find some amazing. balance there. Nice. nice. So what are you working on at the moment? Oh, what am I working on at the moment? I think the biggest thing in my world at the moment actually is um, is Te Reo Māori. So I've been studying Te Reo Māori this year full time and I'm going to do it again next year. So I've been running my business for 10 years now, which started off being just writing trainings, just training people how to communicate more clearly, plain language um, somewhere along the line as my voice got stronger, more authentic, more confident. I realized that I had more things to talk about than just writing. And so now I do a lot of keynotes, a lot of speaking. Um, I built my online school, the School of Unprofessional Writing. So I think that I'm also the founder of my own unprofessional life. Let's be honest, because <laughs> I don't like the idea of professional in a way that it gets held up like a big stick like that's not professional. I just I think it's bullshit. I hope that everyone's going to forgive me for swearing on your they um so so I'm like well if that's what professional means then let's just be unprofessional because clearly in my world being unprofessional has meant um more and more success and more and more freedom over the last 10 years so I'm like bring it if if our old school ideas of what's professional are holding us back then I just think that's kind of more colonized thinking isn't it and then we just mm. keep 
hitting each other with the big stick. So yeah, that's me. And I think, yeah, 48 years, I have packed a lot into my 48 years, but I've packed even more of it into the last 10. So I would say I started spreading my wings at age 38. And the last 10 years has been all about exploration and taking risks. And it's it's super fun. I'm still in my experimental phase. I love it. I love it. So, you know, you kind of touched about um, in the last 10 years, you felt that things have taken a bit of a change. For context, what were you like before that? Yeah. So without going into great detail, I was raised in a conservative Christian religion and five generations my whanau has been in that religion. My great-great-grandmother, my tūpuna, who she had a moko kauai and she was the last in our whanau until me to have a moko kauai. She accepted Christianity and all of my family are still very active members in that church. And mm. this is absolutely not a corridor about I was oppressed and I had to leave the bad religion because that's not been my experience. Mm-hmm. I've had a really beautiful blessed, fortunate, safe, secure upbringing. And all of the skill set that I use to be successful in my world now has that as a foundation. But 10 years ago, um, one little piece of it didn't start to feel true anymore. And because I am quite black and white, I do a lot of work to be in the gray, not sit in the black or the white, because I naturally am either all in or all out. Um, but because I'm quite black and white, I was like, oh, if this part doesn't make sense, then I'm not sure about any of it. And I'm going to walk away and find out what life looks like outside of this world that's always been my entire world. Mm. Yeah, I, it's something. It's a similarity I picked up between the two of us is that we're zero to 100 people. And so <laughs> I, can know, I know there's a middle ground somewhere. I just have difficulty standing in it. So it's it's a good thing to be uncomfortable and kind of operate in that space sometimes. Yeah. And and so you started to you started to find yourself opening up your wings a bit more and kind of getting out there a bit more. What were some of the things that helped you along on that journey? Ooh, well, being with my partner. So mm-hmm. it was the idea of being with him that opened up the little crack in my entire belief system that made me go, huh, I need to need I need to know what what life looks like from the other side or just what if I just drop all of the things that I always believed to be true and started fresh, what would that look like? So having him by my side has absolutely been part of that because it meant taking risk after risk after Mm. risk. And I think that if we're going to take risks, we need a safe place. And he has absolutely without intending to, because we didn't get into this, like we're going to have a long-term relationship. It was something else. Um, and And then it just kind of morphed and now we've, got a mortgage. So that feels like a pretty serious commitment. Um, (laughs) It meant that I could take risks and I could come back and have a place to cry. I Mm. could come back and have a place to celebrate. I could come back and hear someone else's reflections on, you know, I knew what the experience was like being in it, but I had someone else's observation and reflections on that. And those that I I really do think that's the foundation of everything for me. So when I say taking risks, what would happen if I say fuck out loud in a room full of people? Because I hadn't said that my entire life, right? Mm. out, They just get really relaxed and they laugh and then they go, oh, phew, we can just be ourselves. Like that's awesome. Yes. One one in a thousand people doesn't like it and complains. And I'm like, oh, bless. Good luck as you work through that discomfort. Yeah, right. 
Um, what would happen if I wear something that shows more skin because I had always covered my body completely? What would happen if I walk out? I can still remember the first time I walked down the street wearing a singlet and I felt exposed because I had always had this belief that that was not appropriate. Mm. Um, what would happen if I get a tattoo, a tamoko? What would happen if I get my moko kawai? What would happen if I change my website and don't pay any attention to what I think the world expects or thinks is appropriate or professional? What if I just put myself on the on my website as like, sup bitches, here I am, this is me, you know, want to work with me, this would be cool. Also, I'm really fucking expensive. Like what would happen if I do that? Well, it turns out business keeps growing. Nice. But they are just, and sorry, I'm sorry, that was, that was a little full on. but Not at all. They're at 100. Um, risk after risk after risk. And I think that to take risks, we need a safe place to land. Now, not everyone's got a partner who's a safe place to land. But I think that we can all build ourselves a safe place to land, whether that's mm. friends, whanau, siblings, children, like, you know, grown children. We're not going to put that responsibility on our babies. Um, I needed a safe place to land, and that has meant everything. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and just quickly, because in, for any of the listeners that aren't on Spotify or picking this up on the YouTube channel, so they won't be able to see the visual of this, but uh, it's a, absolutely beautiful. Your mokokowai, would you be? It's a beautiful expression, and you wear it well. Would you be able to describe a little bit about it for anybody who can't see? Sure, sure. So mokokowai, um, a traditional indigenous. Um, chin tattoo for for Maori women, wahine Maori, and it's an outward expression of my whakapapa or my genealogy. And there are layers and layers of meaning, and every woman who decides to go on this journey um, will have her own version of what it means to her and what it represents. There's a fairly common belief that we are born with our mokokowai inside of us, and then at a point in our lives, we feel ready to bring it out into the world. Mm. Uh, Part of it for me was as a wahine Māori with really white skin, um, I was really sick of people, people not knowing at a glance who I am, of, mm. of making incorrect assumptions about who I am. I also really wanted to acknowledge the white privilege that I've been a recipient of my entire life simply because of how the world views me. And I wanted to reject it to a certain extent. Like if I put this on my face, people look at me differently. You know, the world experiences me differently and mm. I'm, I'm happy about that. And I got it about five years ago and that was another risk. That was another choice that I made that that my family struggled with. You know, my dad mm. cried, um, not in a good way. He didn't want oh, me. Oh, really? Yeah, no, not at all. My parents didn't come and be with me when I was having this done. I didn't ask their permission because you don't ask vegans for permission to eat steak. And so you don't ask conservative Christians <laughs> who are opposed to tattoos for permission to get a tattoo, <laughs> not just a tattoo. Mm. But I did show up and say, hey, mum and dad, I've decided to do this thing and it's I, I know it's going to be really hard for you, so I'm here to talk to you about it, but not to ask your permission, just to front up and say, let's work this through. Mm. That must take a lot. It must take a lot to, to be able to bring yourself to that point where you're comfortable in saying, I'm, I'm not asking for permission because, you know, there's there's an element of people pleasing, I think, in, in most, if not all of us. And particularly when it comes from a, a, an, a, an opinion or a perspective that you deeply care for, 
And so there's that point, there's that balance of I deeply care for your opinion. However, I'm going to make this decision. Yeah. And I think that it was really interesting to me at age, you know, early 40s. Well, at age 38, when I walked away from church, that was the first time, right? The the intensive internal work that I had to do to come to a realization that if I continued on the church path, that I was literally doing that to avoid upsetting people. And I was going to resent them for that. And if I walked away, then I was causing pain. Now, I don't there's a bit of a balance there because I don't accept your pain because you own your emotions. You, mm-hmm. you know, that that's your journey to work through, but I still had to acknowledge that I was making a decision that would be really hard for my parents that, because they fear for my soul. Like they love me. They want the best for me. I can't hold that against them, mm-hmm. but I had to live my truth. And so I decided I would rather live with the guilt of knowing that I had made a decision that was that took them on a difficult journey than live resenting them because I was living a life that I didn't want to live. So that was Mm. kind of the first really big step. And when you said people pleasing, I tell people I am a people pleaser in recovery. (laughs) It is a daily journey. (laughs) Yeah, especially for women, I think. And I, I know it's not only for women. But we get raised to not not cause upset. Don't be too loud. Don't be too big. Don't be too much. Mm. Don't say things that upset people. It's our job to make people comfortable. Like literally in the home, people come into your home. It's our job to monarchy, to care, to serve. And we carry that into the world with us. So my last 10 years has been very much a journey of figuring out how to peel back those layers and go, hang on. Why is it my responsibility to make people comfortable? Hang on, your discomfort is not a me problem. It is a you problem. Like, mm. good luck with that. Mm. And and it's an interesting journey, but I found it hugely powerful. And do you see uh, some of it as being, I guess, intergenerational? With you know, we <laughs> see how our parents and our grandparents, if we're fortunate enough, um, we see the kind of the the monarchy, the service that they give. Yeah. And then it's kind of okay. This is this is an expectation on me, whether I want to or not. And it's yeah. you know, it, it's kind of by the by, but there's kind of it's it's what we are growing up with. It's what we're brought up with, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and there are religious aspects. There are cultural aspects to that. And um, and the tricky thing is, Manakitanga is a wonderful thing. We want to care for people. We want to look after people. And so it's finding the balance that says, I'm going to serve. I'm going to um, monarchy. I'm going to look after people as a choice because I choose to do that because it brings me and them joy instead of as an obligation that Mm. means I have to do this. I have no choice. Mm. I think because we've got cultural values that are important to us, and we want to retain those. So I'm not at all saying don't be a giver of service. It's about recognizing that I can be a giver of service by choice and that at certain times I can choose to opt out as opposed to I have to do this. It's a burden I have to carry my whole life. It's my purpose. It's my purpose on earth is to, is to exist for others. It's the unpacking of those different layers. Mm. It's a really powerful point as well. Like just the knowledge that it is something that you can opt out of. Yeah, um, at it, times mm. when, when we need to. Mm. Yeah. And do you find, um, is there a, 
you know, we talked about kind of the cultural differences. Do you see a difference in the, I guess, the age demographics as well? Like, you know, I kind of talked about uh, the people before us, like my mum and, and my grandmother mm-hmm. well, on, my, on my father's side anyway, were very much honed into that. Yeah. Do you see that continuing as strongly as it has or do you see more people starting to say, actually, this isn't an obligation. This is something I can opt out of. This is something that I can have more freedom of expression over. Mm. There are these wider cultural um, norms and expectations. Then there's the culture of just your whanau, just Mm. your household. And I think that, you know, say your whanau and your experience in a a Polynesian whanau and my experience in a Polynesian whanau, although there are these higher overarching cultural norms the the experience within our households can be vastly different Mm. and I think that our tamariki our rangatahi our children the next generation down from you and I Eddie I think that they are in a world where they have the opportunity to have a lot more awareness around what's mine to own what's not mine to own Um, understanding uh, that we have choices those kinds of things but even though that's their experience in the world, those pressures within the home, the messages that we receive mm. implicitly, explicitly within the home are always going to be more powerful. So I think you can get um, one child of our children's generation and another, one of whom is like, no, nope, I don't have to do any of those things if I don't want to because I am a powerful human being and I have choices. And another one who's like, no, I have to do this because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And neither of them are wrong that's just slightly different products so do our are our kids are the next generations growing up in a world where there's the possibility that they have more awareness around their options yes um might they still have just lived a life where they think that it's their job to keep others comfortable or whatever also yes mm-hmm. now um, it's, i'm not sure if i got the sequencing right so you got the mokokowai and then you started building your fluency in te reo maori or or mm-hmm. went the other way around um, I've been in and out of my real journey since, you know, for, for 30 years, just kind mm-hmm. of popping in and out for a year here and there, that kind of thing, and then getting pulled away. 10 years ago, I got to a point where I was, had a real basic conversational level. So I oh, could, nice. I could exist in a real Maori space, but there would be lots happening that I still didn't totally understand. And then I started working on my business and really was not in spaces where I could speak the real very much. So I lost a lot of it. Um, about a year ago, I started seeing people who just kind of put their career and their life on hold for a year to go all in, to just total immersion, let's get over the hump, right? And I realized I was never going to get to a level of fluency unless I did that. And here's where my beautiful partner comes in. You know, I said to him one night, hey, babe, I'm thinking about doing this. What What do you think? Like, I'm not sure... I'm not sure what it will look like for my business. I'm not sure how much money I'm going to make. You know, what if I can't contribute my part of the mortgage? He was like, absolutely, you should do it. I've got you. Now, part of that is him living vicariously through me because he really likes me going out and taking risks that he doesn't want to take. <laughs> but also yeah, he had my back. And so I was like, okay, cool. Turns out that I could earn almost as much money just working on my study breaks and with my online school um, as I could working full-time before I started studying full-time. And so part of the learning from that risk is going, 
well, hey, I don't need to work as hard as I have been. Mm. I am to move into the next stage of my life where it's not all about the hustle, hustle, hustle. Mm. I am I, able to find a bit more balance. Yeah. Oh, man, take a note, folks. That is like an insight and a half because I think so many people have this sense of um, uh, commitment to the job and not being able to actually see anything outside of that not realizing that actually that you can totally have your cake and eat it in this example, because you can take that time away from the the nine to five. You can find opportunities to um, work on this thing that you're deeply passionate about and still pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. It can be done. And I, I have a firm belief that part of setting up your own gig, setting up your own business is the hustle hustle. Like I, I personally don't know how that happens, how you can get to a level of success without a period of, I'm just going to go all in and work my ass off. Mm. So my truth is that that's part of the journey. The trick I think is that at some point you have to be able to step back enough to go, oh, I'm still hustling for more clients and more work and, and, and actually I'm overworked. Why am I doing that? Is there still a need for this? Because we just get into a mindset of push, 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 more, more, more. Mm. And then I think part of the discussion becomes, or part of the exercise and the reflection becomes, am I making enough money with the number of clients that I've got? Can I back off from trying to get more work all the time? Mm. If the answer is yes, then cool. If the answer is no, I'm not making enough money, well, then you go, well, then something's not right because I should be able to make enough money for the lifestyle that I choose for me and my family um, and still have the time to live that lifestyle. Mm. Yeah. So, so then we come into the discussion around financial freedom and pricing our services and our, and, and valuing what we have to offer, which has also been a really big part of my journey because hand in hand with the idea that we should, particularly women should serve, should give, should monarchy is the idea that somewhere tied up in it is the idea that um, to seek after wealth is somehow bad or selfish. Mm. That because I am born to serve, that my services should be given out of aroha and not charged for. And I'm like, oh my God, what a load of bullshit. <laughs> it's absolutely what I believed. And I hear it all the time. Women, not just women, because you probably do this too. Oh, but I'm not just all about the money. You know, it's not. And I'm like, well, what if it was? What if it was about all the money? Is Are we not allowed? Like, honestly, you're allowed to want to make money. It's crazy, isn't it? It's something that's dialed into us. Um, and I think it's taken advantage of as well. And that, yes. you know, if I if I bring it back to say people who are who who aren't um in a position to start their own business or to be contracting and they're, you know, yes. my guest yesterday actually, Judd Baker and I were talking about this very subject where um he he's contracting now and you know it just blew us away that when we were working alongside people who were full-time permanent employees, they there was just an expectation of you, you, you just do more work because you you're an employee of us and we will just cram this stuff onto you. Yeah, like and we a own lot you. of it was noise. Like we own you, yeah. And a lot of it was just outrageous noise. It's like adds no value. And as a contractor or as your own business, it gives you an opportunity to say, actually, I'm here for this reason. This is the thing you've brought me on for. This is the delivery. This is the goal. And that focus that comes with it is a really powerful thing. Looking at the uh, at people that maybe are in that um, that 
employee-employer relationship, that full-time situation. What do you think are some of the things that you've learned on your journey so far that would be relevant to them and helping them to grow? So in terms of exploring starting of their something of their own or in terms of staying in an employment situation? but The latter, the latter, because that seems to be like it's quite, it's a big step, right, to go from being a full-time employee to being your own business. And often there's a lot of little conversations or or nudges or prompts along the way. I mean, I, I my own experience is very much like that. It took me years to go from yeah. you know, full-time employee to contractor. What are some of the things that you think within that structure of being a full-time employee that people could benefit from that you've learned or gained from in your experience? Mm-hmm. Look, the thing that really comes to mind for me is boundaries, right? Because if we're in, in that employment situation where your time is not your own and your employer can just suck everything out of you that they possibly can, that doesn't give you the headspace or the energy to even start thinking about what are my alternatives, to even start planting the seeds of growing a side gig, right? Mm. So boundaries around what will I give and what can't I give? What will I and what won't I? What is sustainable and what's not? And um, boundaries have been one of the greatest lessons of my 40s, absolutely, because I don't think I even knew what a boundary was before that or that I should have them or needed them or was allowed to have them. Mm. And so two things for me around boundaries. Number one is a quote from someone called um, Prentice Hemphill. Prentice Hemphill, I don't know, they live in the States. I, I don't know a whole lot about them, but there's a quote from them that I just really, really adore, which is boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm. Well, now, like love, love might be a word that some people struggle with. Like that would help with your kids, right? Boundaries around your teenage kids or your adult kids or something like that. What if we just say respect? Yeah. That, 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 at what I can... At, at which I can respect you, my employer, my boss, my colleagues, and me simultaneously. Now, Mm. as soon as that line is out of kilter, we lose respect for either them or for us. And I, if I come back to before the boundary, I think that there's a really big, beautiful red flag that we can be aware of if we recognize what it is, and that red flag is resentment. So if I were to pause and think about my work life and my home life and ask myself, where am I feeling resentful? I think that resentment is the big red flag that says, hey, you need a boundary or you need to tighten up on your boundary. So if we used that as um, if you think about your work life and if you're resentful that you've got emails coming in at six in the morning then what's the boundary? Is the boundary that I put my do not disturb on until 8 a.m. because I refuse to answer your emails or even look at them until 8 a.m.? Is the boundary that I take my work emails off my phone so that I don't look at my work emails until I sit Mm. at my laptop? Is the boundary that I put an out-of-office auto-reply in my emails that says, I do emails at this period of each day, you can expect a response from me then. So what does the boundary look like? So that all of a sudden you're reclaiming a little bit of your emotional energy, you're reclaiming a bit of your headspace so that then you can focus on what else is there outside of work because you're not going to get out of that full-time employee mode. And I'm not even saying that you have to, 
but you're not going to be able to think about what thriving looks like. You're not going to be able to think about what well-being looks like if you're giving too much of everything to your employment. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> gosh, that's, I kid you not, uncanny um, that Judd, my previous guest, has mentioned so much of you, what you've said as well. And it's just, it's really, I find that really empowering to hear it come from two people's opinions that I respect that are saying the same thing. You know, what are you prepared to um to give to your work and what are you what are you not prepared to give to your work because I think there is that expectation of oh well you work for us and so you know it's, maybe it's changing a little bit but you know still even when I was in the office people are still sending emails at stupid o'clock and mm-hmm. saying oh no don't reply to this it's like well you've given me a work phone you know I'm going to be sitting beside like I'm my own worst enemy don't get me wrong but I don't need you sending me emails at this time because I'm going to open it if you're my manager and you sent me an email I'm prioritizing that so there's a little bit of a, um, I think, a balance that needs to be found there. And it, I think a lot of it does come down to having those defined boundaries. What am I prepared to give to work and what am I not prepared to do? So, yeah, I, I don't know whether a lot of people have found the time or even the, the thought process that's required to get to that stage where they start to define what those boundaries are. I would suggest if somebody is like, wow, I think I need to do some work around this, I would suggest find a quiet space. And honestly, if you have to go sit in your car Mm. on the side of the road somewhere, because that's the only time you can find quiet space, then do it. And either pull out your laptop or a pen and paper and just write the word resentment at the top and then just start exploring. I resent this. I resent that. What what am I feeling resentful about? And it Mm. can be little things. It can be I'm resentful that nobody else fucking replaces the toilet paper like you know (laughs) (laughs) this is a true story in our house (laughs) (laughs) all houses um just just explore it because that's the first point you have to have the awareness before you can make any changes Mm. now there was something uh what was it employee oh i'm a really um what's the word i'm very focused on personal power and personal responsibility now I just need to say power for me is not power in relation to or power over others it's about in my little world right here understanding that I have the power and when it comes to things about work and boundaries the majority of responses that you'll hear or see from people who are feeling overwhelmed at work is this sense of but I can't and but I have to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't ignore an email. I can't turn my phone off. I have to answer. And I really, really want to go, says who? Because you know what? That power is all in our heads. We are the only ones saying I have to or I can't. And I, my favorite thing, and it's absolutely something that I've just explored and developed over the last decade, is to go, who says? Mm. And then to follow that through and go, oh, but what if I did? Or what if I didn't? Okay, so for example, I can't turn my phone off, right? And even if I bring this back from an employment perspective and I talk about being a parent, right? So when I first started my business 10 years ago, my two youngest daughters were eight and nine. My son was about 15. um, And I'm traveling to places where people are paying me a lot of money to be in the room and be present with them for eight hours. Now, I don't think it's re- unreasonable for them to want my full attention for eight hours, which means that I have to be unavailable to my children for those eight hours. 
right? So I used to go, well, I can't turn my phone off because what if, you know, what if there's an emergency? What if they need me? Hang on, who says I can't turn my phone off? Oh, well, it's just me. So let's figure out what would happen if I did. If I did turn my phone off, they wouldn't be able to call me. What would happen? They would have to call someone else. Well, what if I prepare them with a, with plans about, well, if this happens, here's who to call. If this happens, here's who to call. What if we work through that and I make sure that they are well aware from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. on a day when I'm training clients, I will have my phone on do not disturb and I will not answer you. So let's prepare you to be able to draw on other resources. I don't have to be the only person that's available to my children. There are other humans in the world. Mm. But that all takes me in my own head figuring that all out for myself. That Mm. all takes me claiming that power for myself. And people who go, oh, I can't, oh, I have to, you're actually just giving all your power away. And, And that's probably my mission in life, help people realize that the power is within us. Do you think there's an aspect of giving yourself permission that people struggle with? Yes, absolutely. Yep. What if I could? That's one of my favorite questions. What if I could? Mm. What's the worst that can happen? And what if I could? What's the worst that can happen if I get my moko kawai? Oh, my parents will be sad. They'll be really upset. Uh, Will they keep loving me? Yes. Will they get over it eventually? Yes. Will they die? Honestly, one of my first thoughts was, what if they like literally died from grief? What if they died from a heart attack or something because I caused them so much pain? And me going, it's pretty unlikely. Well, what if I could get my mokokoa? What would that look like? Mm. I, would, I would exist in the world um, with one less level of protection and one less level of hiding. I would exist that much more powerfully. I would be showing my daughters what it's like to make powerful decisions. I would be opening the door for the practice of mokokoai for all of my whanonga, those five generations from our tūpuna, none of whom have felt that they were able to. I would be opening the door. So this question of what's the worst that can happen and what if I could, that's where the permission piece comes in. Mm. Um, I had a guest, uh, Danny Steed, and she talked about you know, her mind thinking what's the absolute worst that could happen and what's the absolute greatest thing ever that could happen. And what she said, yeah, yeah, and then she said she'd often found actually the result of it was kind of somewhere in the middle, normally like in the positive side of it, but it was never yeah. as far as the extremes as what her brain had started to conjure up. Yeah, yeah, mm. and that's the power. That's the power of our minds. Mm. Well, it's such a crazy, powerful tool. Like it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Like it can cut through so many things, our, our willpower and our determination and our our thought processes, but the internal narrator can just be crippling at times. It's, our brain loves to lie to us. And one of the reasons is because it's designed to keep us safe, right? Mm-hmm. So it's designed to focus on the scary things. It's designed to focus on the bad what ifs. But we know from neuroscience and from the science of happiness that we can retrain our brain to focus on more positive things. We can literally rewire it to be happier and to to find find good instead of finding bad. But again, we have to make a conscious choice to do that. Mm. Funny you mentioned the science of happiness. That was actually a course that I did uh, during COVID. It was, oh my God, it was so good. What did you learn? Tell me, what what were the key takeaways? Um, a lot of the, like just kind of picking up on the neuroplasticity of our brains and being able to be malleable, being able to change them. 
Yeah. Which I knew, but it, it was nice getting a more academic. I'm a bit of a nerd. So it was nice having like this academic kind of leaning towards it. And I was looking for the evidence that sat behind it. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm a very much an evidence-based person. And so to see the 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 knowledge that was poured into this thing, you know, the data, the metrics, the evidence, the observations, all that kind of thing, that was really useful for me. Some of the things that I took away from it and that I continue to practice were things that I kind of knew beforehand as well. So the power of gratitude of being yeah. grateful for things um you know like myself many people that i know um you know do a thing where you write down what you're grateful for three yeah. things i'm grateful for i don't even write them down anymore i'm like i just if i'm grateful for something i'll try and think of it straight away often yeah. when i'm eating so yeah. um i'm i'm agnostic so uh you know i don't tend to pray before anything and so i kind of yeah. i take that first mouthful and it's just just being really thankful that i've got food yeah. and i can eat it yeah, that, that simple delight of I'm hungry and I can eat something right now, yeah. and if it's bacon, I'm like, oh my god, god. bacon! <laughs> bacon is life. <laughs> yes. So, so I can, I feel like I can really draw on those yeah. and have that experience where I'm just not just generally grateful for that particular point in time, but mm-hmm. that gratitude muscle is something that you know you get. The more yes. you use it, the more powerful it becomes. And so I find I, I can switch it on a lot more often. And then I'm, I feel like mm. automatically I become more grateful for things that I might not have ordinarily been grateful for or maybe just taken it for granted. Mm. Um, one example is town is 10 minutes away from my house. And as I get to the bottom of the motorway, there's just this expansive view of Wellington Harbour. Oh. And Oh my gosh, every single time. And I've driven this road hundreds, if not thousands of times in my life. And every single time I get there and I look over and I'm just like, oh, this is so beautiful. Right. And I think it comes back to, you know, like practicing that muscle. Yeah, because how many people drive past that every day and they're thinking about work and they're thinking about emails and they're thinking about the meeting and they're thinking about their boss and they miss it completely. Mm. But because you and I, understand the neuroplasticity and how we can retrain our brains to focus on positive things to be aware of what we're grateful for and that that literally rewires our brain to be happier Mm. just magic and what i really loved learning about from the science of happiness is that um if you focus on happiness success follows it's not the other way around and i think Mm. that's part of the employment mindset is um, I just I need to be successful and then I'll be happy. I need to be successful. I need promotion. Mm. I need to um, earn more money. I need to do this. I need to buy the house. I need to whatever, and then I'll be happy. But that means that we keep happiness over the cognitive horizon. We never quite get there. Mm. If you focus on how can I be well right now? How can I find joy right now? How can I feel grateful right now? Regardless of all of the shit that's pouring down around us, regardless of pandemics and interest rates and whatever, how can I be well and happy right now? Then the success comes. And, Mm. oh, that's so powerful to understand. It really is. 10 years are absolute evidence of that. And I can't claim any um, credit I didn't know that's what I was doing. It turns out that I'm particularly good at focusing on the here and now and not anywhere near as good as focusing on the future. And that works in my favor in terms of this. Yeah, I, I'm a big subscriber to that as well. Um, you know, I very I place a lot of emphasis on the deathbed test, you know, where I say, look, 
Um, for a recent example, we took kids to the trip that we took the kids on holiday for, we absolutely could not afford. And, yeah. you know, in my mind, the deathbed test was when I'm on my deathbed, am I going to think about the $5,000 that I saved and we didn't go on this holiday? Or am I going to think about this amazing holiday that we took the kids on? And Excellent. man, it's just like done, right? Yeah. All the all the all the noise, all the internal narrator trying to say you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, all just washed away and said yeah. that we're making this happen and we'll find ways. And yeah. lo and behold, you know, the universe kind of just starts pulling these things together and we put it Absolutely. out there and, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. just magical. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and the only time that I'm not going to go ahead and and do the joyful thing is if on the flip side of that is a level of stress that's going to or stress or or harm, you know, that's going to have a mm. profound effect. That's it. Is is the the downside of this amazing experience manageable? Yes. Cool. Then let's just do it. You know, is it a, is it a little bit stressful financially or whatever? Yes, absolutely. As long as it's not going to um, affect my mental well being. Mm. Then, then let's let's do the thing. Absolutely, mm, yeah. And I think we're probably fortunate in that we've done a lot of the disconnecting the um, wealth from the mental health a long yep. time ago. Yeah. Uh, and it was, I feel like our journeys have been quite similar. It wasn't, it wasn't um, like some higher strategic objective that I'd marked down and said, right, and this is how we're going to work this. It was more like stumbling around in the dark and then one bit unfolded and the other bit worked in our favor and then the next bit worked in our favor. And then we're realizing, oh my gosh, this is actually more enjoyable, a, way, a more enjoyable way of living than if we are chained to that computer, like looking at um, you know, some of these endless chores that felt a bit meaningless mm-hmm. uh, in that office environment and said, actually, this, this doesn't fit what our priorities are. And our priorities aren't having a million dollars. Mm. Our priorities are our kids, and you know, being time, spending time with each other. So, yeah, that was. It's been a. It's a cool journey, and it's it, yeah. cool is probably a strange word to use, but no. it's, it's not without its pitfalls either. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Mm. Um, oh, there was something that came to mind while you were talking. I don't know. Ask me another question. What's so, next? What's next? Yeah. Uh, what's next is another year of total immersion, um, Bill study. Uh, I still don't quite know exactly what next year is going to look like in terms of work. Um, but it will, it will figure itself out. Uh, I really want to, so I'm not, I spent all of last year with my real journey going like this, like push, 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 learn the grammar, go really hard, you know, real intensive learning. This year is going to be like this. This year is the bedding down. This year is the, I just want to sit in a real speaking and listening space for six hours a day, five days a week for 40 weeks of this year with mm-hmm. the hope that by the end of the year, like it'll just flow. I, I don't have to like search for words. I want to feel, I want to feel very fluent by the end of the year. Does that mean there isn't still lots more learning to do? No, there will, there will be lots more learning to do, but this is the year of the bedding down. Now, in terms of business, um, I feel a change coming because of my increased um, real capability. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what that looks like yet, but I'm cool. sitting really open to this is going to be fun. This is going to be exciting. Can't wait to see how this plays out. Um, but I don't feel an urge to like figure it out right now. Mm. I feel really comfortable just sitting and going, cool, this is going to be a really nice, exciting next phase. Isn't that a buzzy thing that we often feel like we have to know what the answer is to everything? 
Mm. Yeah. Put in, it's, it's a lot of pressure to put on ourselves. I don't know if I have the answers to many things at all. <laughs> I don't know if I've got them to any at the moment, but I don't mm-hmm. feel like I need to. Well, I think I feel like as as the maturity level and the awareness kind of builds, there's less of that inclination to I have to know the answer to every single problem that's being put in front of me. Mm-hmm. Like actually, it's quite tiring. Um, yeah. And I don't even need to know the answer. There's a lot of great people around me who have answers that I can leverage and, and learn from as well. Yeah, right, which is why I think the self-awareness piece is so important, figuring out what our strengths are. And I'm just going to say the word weaknesses, even though it's not PC. Um, I I love the anything that helps me learn more about myself Mm. because then I can lean into my strengths and I can make sure those areas that don't come naturally to me, I can mitigate those, whether it's surrounding myself with people who do have those strengths, whether it's outsourcing in my business, whatever it is, I've long since stopped trying to put um, effort into uh, strengthening my weaknesses. I'm like, okay, those those are things that are not pumanawa, for example, not inherently naturally part of who I am. I'm not going to waste time trying to get better at those. I'm going to lean into and leverage off what I'm really good at because I can get so much more out of that. Mm. The effort I put into that pays itself off, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold. And over here, I'll make sure that I'm aware that there are yep. those gaps and I'll I'll, I'll stay aware of how those need to get filled. And that just makes such a difference. Mm. And my partner, so talking about how can partners, husbands, um, yeah, partners, how can they support us? Um, he is my exact opposite in every single way. So if you, if you use a tool called Gallup Strengths, Gallup Strengths Finder, which is one that I really like, um, my top five strengths and his bottom five, are the same and vice versa. So my five like greatest weaknesses are his top strengths. That means if we didn't have that awareness, we would just clash all the time because we Mm. are completely opposite people. But because we understand where the other one is coming from and because we understand that those things can complement each other, then all of a sudden that's a really beautiful thing instead of a a place to butt heads, right? Mm. I'm really good at find the joy now. He's really good at the long-term big picture thinking, which is that that just works out beautifully because I can be like, hey, babe, I want to do this thing. And he can be like, cool, let's be aware of these possible things down in the future. And and it just, that works. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. That's cool that you've got that. Um, It's uh, it's amazing, actually, the amount of people that I've met uh, in deep relationships that are different. They're quite different to each other as well. Debbie and I are exactly the same. Um, but they're, they're just so different to each other. You talk to one, you talk to the other person, like you're actually like two opposite sides of the coin here, but they go, they blend together so well. Maybe it is there. Maybe it's because you can't have them like the same. I don't know. I think so. But also um, we, uh, th- those can also become the, the kryptonite as well. Right. So mm. I th- we can go, you're, you're so different. You don't get it. Um, or if we recognize you're so different and that's why we complement each other so well. Like I thrive on risk-taking and and experiencing new things and change. And he is so risk-averse and and, and isn't comfortable with change and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, If I I came into our conversation today, Eddie, thinking about, you know, what, what advice could I give partners? 
Um, one piece of advice that I could give and that I've learned from Mike is um, to just be in allowance and in support of those differences rather than trying to change them. Because I think that it's really human nature to go, oh, that's different. It, it's it's so opposite to everything I believe in. Therefore, you should change it. Right. And he and he just kind of go watches me taking all my risks and sits there going, shit, this is scary. I'm going to sit back and watch and see what happens. And when she needs me, I'm still going to be here. Nice. Instead of saying, oh, I don't think you should do that. Oh, that's risky. Oh, everything inside of him is, I have no doubt, is going, Ooh, no, 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 no. But um, to his credit, and I think this is my second piece of advice. So first piece of advice, be an allowance of difference. Just be in support of difference. Second piece is keep your mouth shut. <laughs> because he would say he would absolutely say that he has learned over the years as a form of self-protection to keep his mouth shut because if he said all the things that he thought he'd probably get in trouble for a lot of them and so he thinks things where he wants to protect me or help me avoid risk or whatever it is but he doesn't say them out loud because because then I would have to come back and go you're not the boss of me you're not allowed to tell me what to do blah, blah, blah. and so because he keeps his mouth shut then we're all good I go do my thing he sits there worried and watching but he knows that when I come back everything's gonna be fine oh I love this I love it. I absolutely do. Um, I'm going to just give a, a so take note. I'll have to mark that down. That's we're going to have to cut that into a, a reel or a clip because that is gold. It's absolute <laughs> gold. Um, I, Rachel Dudfield, who was a, a previous guest as well, had mentioned the same thing that you just described. That's hilarious, and it's it's but obviously it works. Like yeah. it's it's frightening actually the way you described it because there have been times where I've said to Debbie, "You just need to do this." And like, as soon as it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, you shit, idiot. you idiot. Why did you even open your <laughs> mouth for? Like, just keep it closed. Stop flapping. Oh, Some gold. thoughts are better kept to ourselves. Oh, yes, Honestly. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, great open communication is great. Just sometimes just close your mouth. And so here's, here's a real part of my growth, I think, because I am all about communication. I am all about therapy and doing the work and learning the things, right? My partner is not someone to go and do a lot of that internal work. He struggles with therapy and conversations and those kinds of things. And me 10 years ago would have said that is that is a disaster waiting to happen. But I look at him and I now go, well, if it's working, if his processes that are so different than mine are not causing him harm and they're not causing me harm and they're not causing anyone else harm, who am I to say that he should be doing it differently? Now, if I was in his shoes, I would want to unpack all the things and bring them out into the light and have all the conversations and talk it all through. That is not what works for him. Mm. And honestly, me 10 years ago would have said, that's unhealthy. But now I go, well, let's look at the evidence. That's what works for him. If it ever is causing me harm, I will let him know. But that's kind of where the boundary is. You do you until it, it's a problem. I'll let you know if it becomes a problem for me. Let's figure that out. But apart from that, who am I to say how you should manage things? Hmm. Which is a natural inclination I see most people, myself included, have. We just want to... I want to change... Picking up on Out of really, love. I want to change it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah Out of love because I care about you. Hmm. Absolutely. Hey, here's a question. So have you ever had to deal with um, that sense of being an imposter, of having <laughs> imposter syndrome? What has that felt like? Uh, all the time. 
all the time. Mm-hmm. I remember reading a study, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe even more, that kind of said um, the more of a high achiever you are, the higher your experience of, of imposter syndrome. Oh. And and it and it's sounding, it really resonating with me because it said that imposter syndrome is this idea that people are going to find out that I don't actually belong here. People are going to find out, you know, they all think that I can do this thing. They all think that I know what I'm doing. Someone's going to find out that that's not true. And Mm -hmm. so this imposter syndrome thing that, that has this constant level of fear that we're faking it (laughs) and that people are going to find out that we're faking it. It's just such a weird thing. Mm -hmm. And so my go-to is always, let's look at the evidence. I just, I kind of carry around this kitty that's full of evidence that's either little videos in my mind of things that have happened or things that I've done and been like, well, look, Shelly, you stood on stage in the Michael Fowler Center in front of 500 firefighters and they freaking loved what you did. Clearly you are a good speaker. But next month when I've got a keynote coming up, the imposter syndrome is going to come in and go, oh, what if they don't like you? What if you get up there and you do a shit job? Like, ah, so I, I gather up all the evidence. There's little videos. There's um, nice things that people have said to me. I keep a warm, fuzzy folder in my inbox. Like someone says thank you or they um, compliment me or they give me some positive feedback. That gets filed away. And on a really, really, really shit day, I will literally, literally open those up and read them. Hey, that's a great idea. That's a really good, uh, cool idea. It's so, it's keep so easy to file things away and just forget what, but I, I need to draw on the evidence to keep finding the courage to do all the things because I am capable of doing all the things and the imposter syndrome lies to me all the time and mm. evidence is my way of battling that. Mm. Um, imposter syndrome seems to be, and I know it's not um, specific to women only, and I, I've experienced it, I sometimes still do. Um, it seems to be more prevalent among women. Mm. It seems to be um, uh, the the reach and depth of it seems to be experienced more by women than men. Now I can't. I don't know. I haven't for anything to call on that. Just no. the anecdotal evidence that I've had, the conversations that I've had with people. Does that ring accurate to you? And if so, or if not, like why? Mm. Yeah. So first of all, I need to say I haven't done any of the reading on it. I don't. I, I do know that it is a, an experience that more women tend to have than men. Mm, cool. Um, okay. I mean, cool. Is, yeah. In my own opinion, I think that it's related to the societal messages that we get from birth to keep ourselves somewhat small. Um, mm. In in terms of if you're too big, if you're too much, if you're too loud, that causes other people to be uncomfortable. And then that goes back to our earlier conversation. So if if I were to just kind of go with my gut on why I think that happens, I think it's to do with the way that we experience the world that tells us that being too much is a bad thing. And so if you are trying to be more, there's there's that internalized i think that the imposter syndrome is an internalized external voice it's an internalized voice of what society the messages that society has given us mm-hmm. saying don't be too much don't be too big don't take up too much space how many women walk down the street and you bump someone else bumps into you and you say sorry now i think that lots of good humans do that too it's not just women but literally apologizing for taking up space mm. why why are we not allowed to take up space Imagine, uh, yeah. 
yeah so many things so many things yeah. there's um a book and i can't remember who it's by um i've got the book here i haven't read it yet um a feminist really powerful um writing and she says her theory is that there are two types of people in the world there are human beings and human givers men get to be women get to give in oh. support of the existence of the being now that's that's super black and white and probably really confronting but i i feel truth in it that women are raised in the world to feel like we have to give in support of the men who get to be human beings and human givers and mm. that's it's, when you start to think about things in that way it makes it really interesting what is some question stuff sorry oh sorry what sorry what was that last bit it makes you question stuff which is a bloody good thing to be able to do to be able to question things um, slightly off topic. One of the things that we have with the kids is that we're, you know, we're really encouraging them that if they don't like something to question it, they don't want something to happen to question it. Now this is great at a conceptual level, right? (laughs) (laughs) But the principle behind it is just so good because you want people who are engaged citizens or they have a voice. They don't like something, they're going to speak up about it. Mm-hmm. The problem, though, is that in our house, mm-hmm. there reaches a stage where you just say, I just need you to do that thing because I just need you to fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> because, literally because I said so. Because, I, because I said so. I was yeah. like, oh, damn it. I've fallen yeah. into that. It's yeah. it's efficient. It gets me because I, I I I might understand the bigger picture, or at least I think I understand the bigger picture. Like whatever validity they've got to their uh, point of view up to that stage, I'm like I'm just steamrolling it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when we talk about um, consent and um, uh, you know abuse, sexual assault, those kinds of things, we want to raise our children that saying no is a good thing. You say no. Something if something is not feeling right, you say no. Like we want them to have a powerful voice, but we don't want them to say no to us. <laughs> no, do, clean the table. No, what do you mean no? <laughs> and and so how do you help a four-year-old understand you need to be able to say no to things and there are times in our world where you have to say yes whether you like it or not because there are these hierarchies and it's 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 never black and white it's really complex Mm. so you know in general I'm trying to say to my moko who live in my house we've got a couple two-year-old and a four-year-old um you're not allowed to say no to mummy and daddy because mummy and daddy tell you to do things because they love you and they want to do, they want good things for you. You are allowed to say no to other adults in the world, right? You are allowed to say no, but you're not allowed to say no to mum and daddy. Yeah. Right? No. Mm. Yeah. I, this is, I wish we could have this conversation with our 13 year old, but I just don't feel like it's going <laughs> to, I think we missed the train on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'll figure it out eventually. They certainly will. What are some of the, like, what are some, practical things that you can think of that would help a person move past this imposter syndrome? Uh, two things. One is that that evidence that I uh, that I referred to, mm-hmm. that is my most powerful tool. Cool. I kind of hear that I voice. Capture that, leave it yeah. I, um, I hear that voice. I acknowledge it like, oh, you're feeling scared. You're worried that that we're going to, you know, make a fool of ourselves, whatever it is. You're worried that people are going to find out. Okay, let's just check it. Let's, let's sense test this. Mm-hmm. Let's 
look at the evidence. Have we got evidence that we know how to stand on a stage on the stage and speak? Have we got evidence that we're going to get booed off a stage? No. Have we got evidence that no matter what kind of room we walk into and see, I'm talking about myself in the in the plural third person. So that mm-hmm. makes me a little bit crazy. But I have conversations with myself and I have conversations me with too. the parts of myself and that's how we survive. <laughs> so, um, yeah, have I got evidence of the thing that I'm afraid of happening? No. Well, therefore, what's the likelihood that that's actually going to happen? How much evidence have we got that actually this is going to be okay? Tons. So there's that. The other the other piece of advice would be to ask um, for someone to ask themselves, where is that coming from? Like who who says who says that I can't do this thing or that I'm not enough or that I'm not experienced enough or that I'm not whatever whatever the voice is saying who says that and it could come from specifically someone in your world you know dad always made me feel not good enough or mum did or something Mm. or um, it could just be um, fear because we've got fear in us to help avoid risk in order to keep us safe and if you just go oh this is just part of me that wants to keep me safe then I can go Thank you for trying to keep me safe. I hear you. I acknowledge it. And let's just kind of hold hands and do this thing together. Mm. In, in terms of you know, the husband's, partner's, brother's, son's kind of perspective, what would a conversation look like from, from yourself to your husband or yourself to your partner, yourself to your, your brother to help mm-hmm. move through that? move through that imposter syndrome like what what support or what enabling or what empowerment can that person bring to the table and how would you even broach the subject what, what does that conversation even look like mm-hmm. um i just really love in almost any situation in life i love i'm feeling statements you know i'm feeling i'm feeling is such a great way to start a conversation mm-hmm. uh in an email when you are when you have to let someone know that that you're not happy with something saying I'm feeling is a really strong position to start with you know I'm feeling unsure I'm feeling uncomfortable I'm feeling a bit worried so in conversations with my partner like oh I'm just it's just I'm feeling really anxious about this thing next week and how does that conversation go he generally doesn't try to offer advice (laughs) Because I think that trying to fix is is really risky and not usually what we need. I th- I think that in our with our partners, which in theory is our safe place to land, our soft place to land, we're not coming there for a fix. We're coming there for safety and security. We're coming there for a place where I where we can say, "I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling stressed. Whatever it is," and. Um, the thing that Mike is really, really, really good at is just kind of going like, yeah. Like, like just, it, it sounds really woo, but like witnessing, just being there as a witness, like, yep, I see that you are feeling scared. Yep. And then just, just being there, just literally being. If anyone in the world before 10 years ago had said to me that that was effective communication or effective support, sitting there with your mouth shut, um, I would have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? Of course, the best communication is when you work through things. But often, you know, not saying anything, acknowledging that I'm feeling a particular way. Mm -hmm. He might ask me some questions. He might just then relatively quickly move on to a completely different topic of conversation just to get me out of my own head. 
Um, but I think his his best and safest and most loving first point of call is to just kind of go, yeah, and, you know, and wrap his arms around me and then that's it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I sometimes remember, it's, Sorry, you go. No, um, I, I remember, um, so when my, we've had quite a journey with, with my son, my firstborn, and um, he's on an addiction journey and, you know, in and out of challenges around that. And he um, got a, a girlfriend pregnant when he was 16 and that was too early and I was unprepared and, and, and things were really miserable for many years actually around that family court stuff and just, ugh, these are some of the most painful experiences of my adult life. And at one stage I had to consider whether or not I could raise this grandchild and and I've got a lot of work that I've done around my own parenting and and really come to terms that parenting babies and toddlers is it's not my special skill set. Um, I'm really challenged to be mentally well during that period of my life. And here's my son bringing a child into the world and I might have to consider raising it. And I cried for four days straight. I literally cried for four days straight. And and my partner just held me while I was crying and, you know, checked in on me and, and brought me coffees and, you know, and then I worked my way through that after four days. But afterwards he said to me, if you had cried for one more day, I was going to tell you that you, I was going to tell you that I didn't want you to raise this child. But he, that's how long he waited, right? That's how long he just stayed with me while I processed. He didn't, on day one while I was trying, trying to take that pain away, try and tell me this is what you should do because this is what's good for you. Mm. And I think that that's, um, that's a really beautiful example of, of how he is just there and just having his presence. And I remember talking to you in our very first conversation, um, a description that I've used in my book. I've got my book Lessons in Badassery, Badassery. Um, I describe his presence as a hand on the small of my back. Yes, I recall that phrase. It's a beautiful phrase. The the day I kind of first described it that way, I was like, oh, I wish that everyone in the world had the safety and the security and the gentle touch of just feeling that someone's there behind you. You know, it's not a push. It's not holding on. It's not trying to do anything except, hey, I'm here. And that's a really beautiful thing. Mm, mm, it really is. It's a great visual too. Okay, I think it. All the more potent because you can visualize it readily. It's not something you have to like conjure up. Um, for people that don't have the kind of safe space that you've described, and it's a wonderful safe space that you've described that Mike has helped, you know, you've you both really grown, to be fair. It's not just one person creating it, right? It's, it takes, in that situation, you've got a number of hands involved. What about for people that? that just don't have that person. They get home and they just don't have that person. You know, maybe it's a single mum with, with three kids and then, you know, just like at red line for almost the whole day, every day. What What's something that you think might help soothe or just give time to process or would be of value for them? Because mm -hmm. I've been there. I've been that single mum. I've done, I've done the things. And I have to say that I never figured it out while I was there, right? So I just need to be really transparent and say, um, I recognized what I needed once I had it, but I don't I can't I don't know if I have good advice about how to go out and get it. Mm. If I were to imagine me knowing the things that I know now and going back to me then, 
I would be building an online tribe around myself. I would, and those, those safe places that we can build it. Oh, sorry. We just cut out there. Um, we're going to blame Zoom because we don't need to take the responsibility on this one. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were just saying um, you were looking at um, some advice about what uh, people in that yeah. situation go through. And then you're talking about building an online tribe around yourself. Yeah. Um, in the absence of having a partner who is a safe place to land, I think that we can consciously build that for ourselves ourselves online. Because especially if you're the single mom and you get the kids at home and at night times it's when it's lonely. For me, as someone who has, you know, way my journey with weight, I've had gastric bypass surgery and stuff. My go-to in the evenings as a single mom was twisties and chocolate, right? That's me trying to create some comfort for myself. That's not super help, healthy. I now know that we can build online spaces for ourselves and I would call it um, a, a tribe, right? A, a safe place that we can land. And I think that we have to be really purposeful about it. So whether it's a messenger chat that we just invite our best supporters to, and they are the people that they might not all be available at the same time, but if you said to them, hey, you guys, I really wanted to create a place where I could kind of vent at the end of the day. And I want you to know, you don't have to reply if you're not available, but I'm just hoping if there's five of us in here that that when I need someone to just hear the shit and hear me offload the shit, that there'll be someone there to go, yeah, that sucks. That's what I'm doing here. I'm building a space. Um, I watched this happen for a friend of mine after she lost her husband last year and just that space that we created for her. And not one single one of us in that chat could be there her 24-7, but between us, we could. Mm. Right? So through her, her long, lonely nights and her grief and her struggles and trauma and everything, we could share the responsibility of wrapping that around her. Um, I found a Facebook group of full of businesswomen all around the world when I was first starting my business, and some of my um, safest relationships were formed in that group. So if someone wanted to do that, I would encourage you to get really purposeful about what do I want my Facebook feed to do for me or what do I want my LinkedIn feed to do for me? And literally any voice that pops into that feed that isn't helping you achieve that goal, you block it. Yep. You just block it so that it never comes up again. Now, I know when it's family and stuff, people are really worried about that. I don't have an answer. All I can tell you is you have the power to build a safe space and build it, make Mm. it happen. Mm. I will literally read other people's posts and the comments on other people's posts on LinkedIn. And if someone has said a, has said dumb shit on someone else's post and I'm not even connected to them, I will block them literally so that I never have to even accidentally come across them again. That's a bloody good idea. I don't have to be connected to them to block them. I'm like, oh, I don't want to read your bullshit, so block. And- I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. Because some guy, I, I'm, I'm not going to name names, <laughs> some guy. <laughs> So a friend of mine, he puts up this stuff that I don't entirely agree with, but I'm, mm. I'm okay with him putting it up simply because that's his opinion. He can, he's welcome to have it, right? But he also has a person that that continually comments. And every time I read this guy's comments, I'm like, man, I just disagree with your worldview so much. You're really mm. negative, quite a toxic person. I'm not sure like why it keeps coming up in my, but I think what the algorithms have realized is that it's triggering me because I'm reading it. Yes. You know, my mates put this thing up and then I'm reading the comment and it's like I'm spending time reading this comment and it's always just this like novel. And so I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, I'm getting all angry at myself thinking, why am I reading this shit? And then 
it's popping up again on the next comment because you know the algorithms will be saying, "Well, Eddie, you're clearly enjoying yourself over there. Here, have some more." So yeah, I'm do so that. you can just Great block idea. it, listen. Yeah. So then you can still see your mates' posts, but also you can unfollow, right? Because there are people that I'm like, I don't mind staying connected to you, but I don't need to see what you're posting every day. So I'm just going to unfollow you. Mm. There's also that. Um, I, it's not an ideal solution um, to to have to build that for yourself, but in the absence of that kind of support in your actual home, um, that's the best advice that I've got. Mm, no, I love it. I really do. That's very practical advice as well. I think you're touching on the social media aspect, and I, I do feel like that contributes to the sense of imposter syndrome that we have because, mm. you know, you're ever, only ever seeing the top, what, 2% of people's lives. Like, this is the cool thing that I did. And look what I won the other day. And look how amazing I am. Look where I am. Look who I'm with. Look at what I'm doing. And it's so easy to think, wow, that person's really kicking ass in life. I'm not yeah. doing what a tenth of the things that they're doing. What am I doing wrong? I, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly, you know, and it just all of these negative emotions and um, ideas that get pulled into that would contribute to the imposter syndrome, which would contribute to these feelings of inadequacy of um, relationship management or how to work with relationships. So I'm not surprised that we are finding ourselves in these situations because we're constantly swimming in them and then being bombarded with this information that we're not good enough. Yeah, and our brain doesn't go, oh, that's just a highlight you're seeing. It's not the full truth. Mm. Our brain just goes, truth. Now, on that same note, though, because we understand that's how our brains work, if you want to set up your side gig or do or or raise your profile, just know that the way that you choose to show up on online is truth for other people. So you can, you know, if you want to, you want to start a side gig as a business coach, you want to start a side gig as a, I don't even know what, underwater basket weaver. You just start showing pictures of you being an underwater basket weaver and the world knows that you are one. You don't have to go, and this is another thing that women do, I think. We go, I'm just starting my business or I'm just thinking about starting my business or, you know, two years ago I started my business. Whereas you can just show up and go, hey, this is a thing. I do this. Mm, Yep, absolutely agree. All the world knows is that you do that thing. That just becomes truth. It's not a lie. You're not faking it. You're just going, this is me showing up. Bring on the business. And so if I were to give anyone um, advice around how to just even kind of get started, don't wait to become a thing before you show up as the thing. Show up as the thing and then it becomes truth. Oh, I love that. Don't wait to show up to become the thing. Oh, that's great. That's gold. Um, There's a a recent, in the social media vein, a a lady had done a, a podcast with somebody and she, when she posted it up to share it, her opening line was something like, if you like listening to lots of ums and confused responses, then you'll enjoy this podcast that I did with da da da. And mm. I just thought, man, that's you're, you're not helping. Like you've got so much more to offer than the way you've described yourself. I haven't even listened to it, but mm. I know you'll have more value to offer than the way it's you've really described it. Hello, imposter. Syndrome. Mm. Yeah. You're just, mm. you're just putting it out there. You're like letting the imposter syndrome do the work. Yeah, yeah, and really like bedding it into your mind. Like I'm making this official um, mm. that this is how I view myself. Like I'm, mm. I'm solidifying that opinion. Yeah. Uh, one of the tricks uh, that we learned in Toastmasters is you never start your speech with this is my first speech or 
I've just pulled this together or, or anything along those lines. You just go straight into it. Like your first words are going to be the most, some of the most memorable that you might have in the whole speech. So, you know, make it, make an impact. Mm. And by doing that, you, you, the crowd doesn't know it's not, it's the first time you've spoken. No. <laughs> They've got no you idea. Are, there you are speaking. That's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, the way you've described it online is absolutely bang on. Like they're seeing what you're putting out there. So if you decide to be, as you said, an underwater basket weaver, that was some cool visuals for me as well. Like if that's what you're going to be, then that's what the world is going to see you as. And if you say I'm a high level underwater basket weaver, they'll be like, oh, sweet. I didn't realize, but clearly there's levels below it as well. So exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. a good way to position yourself. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I was thinking of something else to ask you as well. Oh, the juggling aspect. So, mm. you know, for many people, um, parents and even parents of fairy children, like there's going to be some aspect of this juggling, juggling work, juggling finances, juggling responsibilities with the kids and all that. What does good look like for you? When you when you know these, you've got these, you're spinning the plates and you don't feel too pushed at doing it. What does that look and feel like for you? And how do you know? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. How do I know? I think, um, I think for me, good looks like I'm not juggling plates. I'm not the one holding all the plates. Everyone's got some plates in their hand and we've all got them equally shared out. Um, Again, this comes back to, you know, we've got this underlying theme and maybe it's my theme about um, the, the lies that society tells women um because that's my experience that's really all I can speak to uh we because we feel like we're the ones that have to run the household we unwittingly accept all of the emotion all of the responsibility for the emotional labor so I am I might be working full-time um but I'm also the one that's managing all the kids activities I'm managing all of the taxi driving I'm organizing the calendar I'm doling out responsibilities to people I need you to pick up this person this time and I need you to do that and then I've got to, someone's got to get the groceries who's making the grocery list who's feeding the dog who's remembering that the dog needs to get the flea treatment right emotional labor part of my last 10 years has been um, delegating all of that and going hey there's no rule that says I have to be the beer and doer and holder of all things there are other humans in this house how can I delegate that And I really do mean delegate, like actually take it away from me. It's now yours. I don't have my hands on it at all. Mm. For example, um, when my teenagers were all still living at home, um, I had an app. I had an app on my phone, a grocery app. Everyone's got the app on their phone. If you are the last, the person to use the last of something, or if there's something that you need for your week, or there's a food that you want or whatever, you put it in the app. I go shopping on Tuesdays. And um, if it's in the app, I'll buy it. If it's not, too fucking bad. Right, so I, it's no longer my responsibility to make sure that the list gets filled in. It's now everyone's responsibility. If you want a thing, put it on there. Now that quite quickly, I think my daughter, one of my daughters, was like fifteen when she started doing the groceries. Not because I asked her to, but because Mum's traveling, and she's like, "Hey, Mum, I thought maybe I would do an online grocery order for you. Do you want me to just? Is there anything else you wanted to add to the list?" And all of a sudden, my children are capable of doing that. Oh, nice. So, so now not only am I having to think about what the household needs and go and get it, 
um, uh, it's just happening without me. It starts mm. to just happen. Um, the only person I couldn't train to use the app was my partner, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> but to his credit, when he wants something, he goes and gets it. So oh, there you go. And he doesn't so, complain. So he's still part of the solution. <laughs> yeah. Um, so delegating out those kinds of things and just making it clear what things I'm willing to take responsibility for and what things I'm not. For example, I'm not a good housekeeper. And so once I could afford it, I started paying a cleaner to come in. When my partner moved in, he was like, I think your children should be helping clean the house. And I'm like, I hear you, but I'm not willing to chase them and I'm not willing to do it myself. He said, I'm willing to chase them. I'm like, cool, that's now all yours. I will stop paying a cleaner if you're happy to take full responsibility for that. How's that working? Um, it worked. It was, nice. you know, he, he was probably a little bit miserable because he was always trying to chase them. But I'm like, well, that's your choice, not my problem. Yeah. Um, and I still didn't have to worry about the cleaning, right? So juggling in, in my world, what does good look like? I only have as many plates as I can hold. Mm. Juggling anything. Yeah, no, that's a good call. Um, you know, on that on that point about chasing kids to do something, there is a point where because it. It's not something like you ask for any people out there who are listening aren't parents. Like you could ask a child to do something. And if you're at work and you ask somebody to do something, it was rather menial. Hey, like, can you go and um, put a jug of water in the in the kitchen or something? Something simple like that. Yeah. The chance that it's going to get done. You'll ask them once, they'll do it. Yeah. With kids, you could ask them once and get no movement out of them whatsoever. And then you could ask them another six times and still get no more movement. And meanwhile, it's starting to fester in your mind that this really simple thing that you've asked them to do in amongst all the things that you do for them mm. you just ask for this one thing and they don't do it, it just starts mm. to piss you off yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. there's there's a lot of value I've considered getting a, a cleaner in our home as well for that very reason and I'm just you know um, trying to help Debbie ask the kids a lot less because another experience I've learned from is that if you ask a child to do something 14 times then the next time you go to ask them, they won't do it after you've asked them 10 times because they know, well, you've got another four left in your dad, so I'll just wait it out until you've asked. <laughs> it's awful. It's, it's awful. Oh. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot in there. There's a lot packaged up in there, folks. I hope you appreciate yeah. it. Because <laughs> so setting up, just like me delegating those kinds of emotion, the emotional labor and me going, hang on, this does not have to be just my responsibility. Mm. Um setting up systems that are that are self-managing right like so once your kids are old enough this is the jobs board these are the jobs for the week I will not chase you they have to be done by Friday at 5 p.m and here's the consequence if they don't happen like just end of story it's just natural like that is the system that we use it doesn't require me to chase you at all now was I good at that stuff probably not but occasionally I set up things like that that worked really well and going back to the whole employee thing mm. and those are the kinds of things that we don't have the emotional energy to do when we're giving too much at work. You mm. haven't got the headspace to step back and go, oh, so it's, it's um, you know, it's just this cycle, like snowball effect. I'm giving too much at work. That means I haven't got the energy to think clearly at home. So then I do more things at home and then everything gets harder and the hello plates that I'm juggling. Mm, mm. And it all adds up. Mm. It all adds up. Awesome, Sheila. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground there. 
It's been great. I've loved it. Thank you so much. Oh, man, my pleasure. Honestly, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I knew I would too. Like you you give off a really good buzz, by the way. So, (laughs) yeah, congrats on everything. Congrats on all the achievements that you've had so far, um, overcoming, you know, some pretty significant obstacles, internal obstacles as well, um, and just managing to, not just managing, and finding your way into a life that you're happier with, that you're more passionate about. you know, I, I'm so glad that you were able to share some of your journey with me and, you know, with the audience on this because you've dropped some absolute gems in there as well. And I'll make sure, like, I, I can tag a few of them in there because I think that they they need to get out there more and people would absolutely benefit from, from hearing a lot about your journey and some of the practical things that they can do. Um, before I wrap it up, is there anything else you might like to add? Do you have any final words of wisdom for the people out there? No, we've tapped out all my wisdom for sure. Um, (laughs) No, no, look, the power is within you. All of the power. All of the power is within you. No one can give it away except you. No one can take it away. No one can claim it except us. That is gold. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing everything. Uh, For my audience or for our audience, where, if they would like to reach Shelly Davies, how can they get a hold of you? Um, So shellydavies.com is my email. Please feel free to hit me up. Shellydavies.com or .co.nz, either one of those will get you to my website. Um, That will also get you then to my School of Unprofessional Writing, which is unprofessionalwriting.com. No, that's not right. (laughs) Unprofessional. Unprofessionalwriting.com. Yeah, that sounds right. Unprofessionalwriting.com. Um, if you can't find me, I'm doing something wrong. Like search for Shelly Davies, spell my name wrong, call me Davis, anything. You should still be able to find me, let's be honest. Cool. And what I'll do is I'll also, if I can get a link off you, I'll chuck it into the show notes, folks. So please be sure to reach out to Shelly. Uh, man, got so much got so much from that. Really do appreciate it. Um, don't forget, folks, to click follow, subscribe, do all the things to make sure that you can get more of these. Um, this was another one of the guests that you know we had as part of this Living Your Passion series that we're doing. And I'm so grateful for everybody that's come on and has contributed in some way because the, the, this thing is just absolutely filling my bucket. I'm super grateful. Um, once again, Shelley, thank you very much for everything. And I look forward to us catching up again. Love your work, Eddie. Mei takimata and tēnā rawa Ah, Nice. Kā kite. We'll talk again. <laughs>